What's the cure for cold-hearted Christians? What do we do when our hearts are spiritually dry and withered? Or what do we do when other things are enticing us and we find that we have very little love for our Savior? What can we do? Well, an old theologian called John Owen gives us this answer. He says, study Jesus a little. You love him not because you know him not. And that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to study Jesus together so that we might know him better and love him better. And our guide for this evening is the Apostle Paul, the man we met this morning in Acts, the man who started out hating Jesus, but who came to love him so much that he was able to say, for me, to live is Christ. We're going to turn back to Paul's letter to the Colossians. In this letter, he's writing to Christians. In the passage Mike looked at last week, Paul finished by saying, I'm delighted to see how firm your faith in Christ is. So these are people who love Jesus. But Paul knows very well that love can fade. He knows that other things can interfere with our love for Jesus. So in our passage this evening, Paul says, let's study Jesus a little. The more we study him, the better we'll know him, and the more we'll love him. And Paul's message is, he's all you need. If you haven't already turned to Colossians, our passage starts in chapter 2, verse 6. It's page 1183 in the church Bible. I'll read verses 6 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations which was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is God's word. And Paul begins with a command. Build your life on Jesus. 
In other words, trusting in Jesus is not a matter of praying a prayer so your sins can be forgiven and you don't have to go to hell. Trusting in Jesus is a lifestyle for a lifetime. Paul says we are to live in him. And the idea of being in Christ or with Christ is all through this passage. Paul says continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. You have been given fullness in him. In him you were circumcised, having been buried with him and raised with him. God made you alive with him. Sometimes in the NIV, the word Christ is put in, just to remind us who Paul is talking about. He's showing us that as far as our lives are concerned, it's all about Christ. And he sets it out for us in verses 6 and 7. These verses have been called the heart of the letter. Look at them again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Megan and I are members of the RAC, the Royal Automobile Club. Every year we pay them a fee and they send me a new card for my wallet. Maybe some of you have one of these. This one expires in just a few days. Every year we pay them a fee and they send me this card and then I forget all about them until next year. In the four years that I've been a member of the RAC, I've never called them. I've never even looked closely at my card. And if Megan hadn't mentioned last week that the membership fee was due, I could not have told you whether we're members of the RAC or the AA. All I know is if the car ever breaks down, I have an orange card in my wallet. If I call the number, which is helpful in very big letters, if I call that number, someone will come and they'll sort out the car. Hopefully. But then again, I don't normally carry my wallet, so there's a bit of a flaw in the plan. Anyway, assuming I did carry my wallet, that's quite an acceptable approach to break down help for your car. But it's a totally inadequate approach to Christianity. And yet it's quite common. I'm not just thinking of people who make an annual pilgrimage to a carol service. It's easy for you and me to fall into a kind of RAC Christianity. We pay our dues by going to church every week. And beyond that, well, Jesus is there if I need him. But Paul says, no, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now live in him. Literally walk in him. Develop a living relationship with him. Make him the center and the focus of your whole life. And then having given that command in verse 6, Paul explains what he means in verse 7. He says we're to be rooted in him. The man or woman who puts their roots down into Jesus will be a person whose life is firm. The deeper and more developed our roots are, the more unshakable our life is going to be. Whatever storm comes along to blow against us, Whatever drought comes along to deprive us of moisture. 
if our roots are deep, we'll hold firm through the storm. We'll find nourishment even in the drought. Then Paul switches from the picture of a tree to the picture of a building. We're to focus on being built up in Christ Jesus. So it's not just about standing firm through our relationship with him. It's also about growing. And how is this going to happen? How do we develop deep roots and get built up? By being strengthened in the faith as you were taught. So if we're going to live or walk in Christ Jesus, we're going to have, if we're going to have deep roots and be built up, we have to know Jesus better. As John Owen said, we will come to know him better as we study him. We study him in God's word. That's where he's presented to us. We can't rely on our own ideas about Jesus. We need to let the Bible teach us about him. And as we do, one of the results will be, verse 7, a life overflowing with thankfulness. As we study him, we will know him and we will love him. Then having given this command to live in him, Paul goes on to teach us about him in the rest of the passage. In verses 8 to 10, he says, Only Jesus is solid and satisfying in a hollow and disappointing world. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. One of the reasons we become cold and joyless as Christians is because we get sucked in by the hollow and deceptive ideas that we're bombarded with. Next week, we'll see the particular hollow and deceptive ideas the Colossians were being exposed to. But in the meantime, it's not hard for us to come up with a list of our own. For example, we're constantly getting the message that looks and appearance are what matter most. If you look good and sound good on the outside, then you're good. You've succeeded. The better you look, the more you're worth. Alongside that is the idea that the more you earn and the better stuff you have, the better your life must be. So today, the health of a country is measured by its gross domestic product, its GDP. And the message of that is, if the economy is going well, well then the country is obviously healthy. And so economic recession is the worst possible thing that could happen. Never mind the state of family life and spiritual life in a country. If the economy is good, it's all good. Those are examples of hollow and deceptive philosophies. They're all around us wherever we turn. And they're like poison. In verse 8, Paul says they can take us captive. They can make slaves of us. 
And if we swallow the poison, if we take those ideas on board, they will disappoint us. Because they're lies. There's no weight to them. They're insubstantial. The book of Ecclesiastes says, a life built on those kind of ideas is a life spent chasing after the wind. In fact, Paul says, these hollow and deceptive philosophies are not just human ideas. They're satanic. That seems to be the meaning of that phrase in verse 8, the basic principles of this world. It's quite an unusual phrase. Paul uses it three times in his letters. Two of those times are in this chapter. One of them in the passage we'll look at next week. And he seems to be referring to demonic powers. So a better translation would be something like the elemental powers of this world or the elemental spiritual forces. In a moment, Paul will call them powers and authorities. And the point is, the devil doesn't always work the way he's shown working in horror films. In fact, his common tactic is to get us chasing after hollow and deceptive ideas. To get us taken captive and enslaved by those ideas. If the devil can get us chasing money like it's the answer to our problems, then he's perfectly happy. And the reason he's happy is because all those deceptive ideas lead us away from Jesus. They cause us to miss out on the solidity and satisfaction of a life built on Jesus. Look what Paul says again in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. When we get fooled and led astray by this world's ideas about a full life, we miss out on the true fullness that's available in Jesus. Jesus has all of God's power and wisdom and goodness. We heard last week that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He has all the resources to fill us to the brim. In John's Gospel, he says, I have come to give life in all of its fullness. So he's not just offering an alternative to the other sources of fulfillment. He's the only true source of fulfillment. All of the others are just empty imitations. It's a little bit like the difference between looking at a child's drawing of the Grand Canyon and actually going to visit the Grand Canyon. Wouldn't we choose the real thing every time? Paul is saying it should be an equally obvious choice between the fullness available to us in Jesus versus the empty imitations that are trotted out by the devil. And so what are these realities we have in Christ? Well, first of all, Paul says... Jesus has made us alive. Verse 11. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. These verses seem a bit complicated at first. It's easy to get tied in knots. I've spent the last couple of days getting tangled up in these two verses. But actually, Paul is saying something quite simple. He's saying that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection counted as your death, burial, and resurrection. The reason it seems complicated is because Paul starts out talking about circumcision. Physical circumcision was extremely important for the Jews. They would refer to non-Jews as the uncircumcised. And here Paul is writing to the Colossians, who would not have been physically circumcised because they weren't Jews. And yet Paul says to them, in him, that's in Christ, you were circumcised. So what does he mean? He means that Jesus' death counted as our circumcision. Not the kind of circumcision we, where we lose a piece of skin, but a circumcision of the heart, where we part company with that old sinful nature that ruled us. Paul is saying that our old sinful nature died with Jesus on the cross. It doesn't define us anymore. His death counted as our death to our old way of life. And Paul goes on to say that not only does Jesus' death count for us, his burial and resurrection count for us too. In verse 12, we have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. Baptism symbolizes the truth that when Jesus was laid in the tomb, our old way of life was laid in the tomb with him. And when he rose to life, we rose to new life. And we receive all of that by putting our faith in the fact that by the power of God, those things that Jesus did were done for us, for our salvation. Jesus made us alive. The old has gone and the new has come. Paul summarizes it all in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. As we study him and come to know him as the one who gives us life, how can we fail to love him? And there's more. Paul goes on to say that Jesus has paid our debt. In the middle of verse 13, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Most of us know what it's like to live with financial debt. I would guess for most of us that that most of us that takes the form of a mortgage. But there could be other debts. And so long as we can pay them, or if we're confident we can pay them, then they're not a big burden to us. But if we get into difficulties, and if we realize that paying that debt back is going to be beyond us, 
then the weight of it starts pressing down on us. The burden of it can even break our health. And if that's true of financial debt, what can we say about the debt of our sin? Now, I realize that many people live in ignorance that they even have a debt of sin. But once we become aware of it, once we truly grasp the vastness of it and the consequences of it, it can drive us to despair. Maybe some of you had that experience when you began to grasp what the Bible teaches. Maybe you can remember a time when God's holiness and your own sinfulness began to dawn on you. The Bible calls it conviction of sin. It happens at the point where we stop kidding ourselves that we can make up for our sin or that our sin is only a little thing. It can be overwhelming to realize that we owe God an eternal debt that we can't pay. If we truly get a sense of it, it can crush us to the floor. John Bunyan pictured it in Pilgrim's Progress as a massive burden on Pilgrim's back. But then, to discover that Jesus has paid that debt for us, that can make us feel light enough to fly. And Paul says he has paid it. In New Testament times, when someone was crucified, it was the custom to nail a notice of their crime onto the cross. And what verse 14 is saying, that the notice of our crime was nailed onto Jesus' cross. Or if you like, the bill for our crime was nailed onto Jesus' cross. That's what's being referred to in the words, the written code with its regulations. The updated version of the NIV translates it as the charge of our legal indebtedness. Another version says, the record of debt that stood against us. So when verse 13 said, God forgive us all our sins, that doesn't mean he agreed to let bygones be bygones. Let's just forget it. No, it means he forgave our sins because Jesus paid for them. Our unpayable bill was nailed to his cross and paid for by his death. As we study him and come to know him as the one who has paid our debt, how can we fail to love him? Finally, Paul says, Jesus has defeated the enemy. Verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities here are the spiritual powers, the same spiritual powers that were mentioned in verse 8 and verse 10. And the great irony is that those spiritual powers thought they were triumphing over Jesus at the cross. After all, through the work of evil men, the Son of God was being put to death. And yet what seemed like the moment of Jesus' defeat turned into his triumph. He paid the debt of sinful men and women. 
The devil has no claim on those who trust in Jesus. We're debt free. And Jesus broke our slavery to sin and death. Those who trust in him have the power to resist sin and the devil. And one day we will follow in his footsteps to resurrection. Jesus has defeated the enemy. The devil's power has been broken. He's disarmed. He's defanged. He can rage and he can fume, but he has lost the war. He has no power over God's children. He cannot finally harm us. And when Christ returns, Satan will be removed from the scene entirely. The cross looked like it was the end for Jesus. But it turned out to be the stake through Satan's heart. As we study Jesus and come to know him as the one who has defeated our greatest enemy, how can we fail to love him? Jesus is all we need. We can build our whole life on him. And we're going to praise him now as we sing, You're the Word of God the Father.